When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. We're back again today with an album I actually know personally, an album that I've been listening to since it came out nearly 14 years ago. It's Snow Patrol's A Hundred Million Suns. Take back the city for yourself tonight. I'll take back the city for me. Now, you may be saying Snow Patrol. Why does that name sound familiar? Do I know anything by them? Weren't they big? Well, they were. As anyone that was in touch with the radio around the mid 2000s, you may easily recognize this riff. We'll do. One of the songs that absolutely everyone learned on piano or guitar, a sad boy romance song a la early days, Death Cab for Cutie. The song has almost a billion plays on Spotify alone. It was a tough decision on whether to cover that album that has that song eyes open or this one. In the end, I chose to cover this album so as to avoid any sort of immediate eye roll by trying to explore chasing cars beyond the meaning that everyone has already wrapped into it. In some ways, this may be succumbing to the fear of not living up to the expectations of the listeners, but it more has to do with the fact that it has been listened to enough times that it's likely those people have their own meaning attributed to it, one that would be unfair of me to attempt to unravel. Sometimes this in and of itself is the reason that artists don't share their intention behind their art, as the meaning that people derive from the work is ultimately going to be more important to them than the meaning that the artist intended. As everyone experiences the world differently, and as such experiences art through different perspectives. One of the problems inherent in going to someone else, like me, for the meaning behind something, or even going to Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb to gauge a movie's average score prior to seeing a movie, is that you remove your own agency, and as such, you hinder your own ability to find some kernel that is important or valuable to yourself. 
Now, obviously, not everyone has the time to see every movie ever made, to listen to every piece of music that comes out and play every video game that you see on sale, but relying on the words of others to inform your selection and opinion for everything that you do minimizes the opportunities you have to really explore how something speaks to you personally. Now, that's not a very good advertisement for you to continue listening to this episode, or rather this podcast as a whole, but there is some value in listening to other people's perspective. Learning how something is perceived by someone with a different life experience does grant more texture than otherwise one would get on their own, similar to the benefit of having different minds work on the same project. So with all that being said, take these episodes as more of a starting point, a way into the material that you otherwise may have been turned off to for this or that reason. We want to provide perspective, not critique, an entry point, not an awards podium. So, 100 Million Suns, Snow Patrol's fifth studio album, released in 2008 to generally okay reviews. As with many of their other albums, this one was largely written by lead singer Gary Lightbody. He's a type of songwriter where he starts with hundreds of song ideas that are then whittled down. The band ended up narrowing down from over 200 songs to the album as it is. The goal was for a more lighthearted, bright sound than before, and I think that comes across fairly well in the music, a brighter mix of indie pop and rock than previous albums. The album peaked on the Irish chart and did fairly well on some others, ranking second in the US top rock albums, the UK albums, and Scottish albums. It has been certified three times platinum in Ireland and platinum in the UK, but had surprisingly weak numbers in the US despite its chart success, not even reaching gold status. With only an aggregate Metacritic of 67 and telltale signs of the album's middling success seen on Spotify, with none of the songs making it into their popular list, it's both not a surprise and also a surprise that it sold one-fifth of the total records as Eyes Open, their previous outing. But who really is Snow Patrol? Well, even beyond chasing cars, Snow Patrol has been a fairly successful band. They've released seven studio albums as well as a collection of reworks and remasters, with the band selling well over 10 million albums total. This is the most recent number I could find quoted as far back as 2009, so who knows how many it's been since then. In fact, the website The Music Network claimed they crunched the numbers and found Chasing Cars to be the most played song of the 21st century, at least on UK radio. Formed in Scotland in the late 90s, currently they're made up of vocalist and songwriter Gary Lightbody, guitarist Nathan Connolly, bass guitarist Paul Wilson, drummer Johnny Quinn and pianist Johnny McDaid. They've done six official tours and played over a thousand shows worldwide, and with a few shows in the past two years, it may prove that they are not quite done yet. Now, with all the backstory out of the way and a bit of a foundation for this week's shindig, it's time to dig in and get into the meat of the episode with the breakdown of this week's album and one of my personal favorites, A Hundred Million Sons by Snow Patrol. Q 
People have a habit of making a mess of things, overcomplicating, overthinking, overpreparing, overindulging, overdoing. We speak in exaggeration, often embellishing or omitting details and stories to make them more interesting. And more than half of our entertainment relies on characters that have the communication skills of jellyfish. We are paranoid and quick to accuse or judge, and we are often stubborn, steadfast in our opinions, and standoffish to anyone who dares disagree. As a result, it's much easier for us to form an opinion about something quickly, based on our assumptions and our experience than it is to change and develop an opinion over time, based on and open to new ideas. And similarly, it is easier to accept a simple interpretation than it is one that has the ability to challenge or confuse, especially within the turmoil that we bring upon ourselves as a result of our messy natures. But to challenge or confuse ourselves is to grow ourselves. By actively engaging with ideas that seem too complex to grasp, we allow ourselves the opportunity to gain the tools to better understand our world in the future. Much like using weights to exercise our bodies or puzzles to exercise our minds, so can we develop systems that exercise our compassion, our curiosity, and our insight. And one of the best ways to do this is to look beyond the most basic reading of a piece of media, to actively seek out metaphor and illusion, and to break it apart as a means of introducing depth into a body of work. Snow Patrol's album, 100 Million Suns, rides right along this intersection. It's really easy to view this album as presenting a story of a participant in a relationship that has a raging, passionate love for their partner, filtering through moments of difficulty, cracks in the veneer that show an uncomfortable state. Songs like Crack the Shutters, The Golden Floor, Set Down Your Glass, The Planets Bend Between Us, and Engines all present incredibly loving lyrics, bright and even joyful at times, love that expands out to include a hundred million suns, or an infinity sign they carve into the earth below them. Yet songs like If There's a Rocket Tie Me To It, Lifeboats, or Disaster Button present the couple separated, or on argumentative terms. In fact, listen to the beginning of Lifeboats, the very first verse of the fourth song, and notice the lyrics that mirror argument behavior. Let me get the words out before I burst. Cool heads have failed. Life's way too short to scream and shout. The references to the visceral nature of relationship arguments is clear here. And so we've established a theme, and it works for the majority of the album, if not all of it. Every song fits into this back and forth between a loving couple, moments of peace and light, and one that is in the midst of troubling circumstances, silences that are cold and icy. It all even wraps up in the lightning strike at the end of the album, a song representing this flash of passionate love that precedes a coming storm that threatens to swallow them before they find comfort in each other and come out of the storm on the other side stronger than before, each other's life raft. 
script. But what if we could find a weirder through line, one that introduces a new wrinkle onto the idea of a traditional relationship and gives us some other foundations to build new theories and gain new insights from? And what if I told you that this alternative through line could be something like, I don't know, a return to respect for Mother Nature in the tide of a post-apocalyptic world? Now, I hear your complaints. Christian, by opening up this Pandora's box of weird, what is to stop you from finding more and more outlandish theories every episode, removing the grounded nature of the six episodes that precede this one, and totally alienating your audience? To which I say, The X-Files was a very successful show. Conspiracies are hot. Conspiracies are in. But in all seriousness, the point of this exercise is not to be lol so random, but to double down on the point of the podcast, providing a new perspective on an album to gain a better understanding or appreciation for the music and maybe find some new ideas in the process. So let's crack it open. We have three things to figure out here how the world is post-apocalyptic and why that's important, how Mother Nature is represented and contributes to the theme, and how the romantic bent of many of the songs ties into the other elements and helps ground this into an actual meaning. To best understand the world being presented here and expand on the other two themes, we need to first find the nature connection itself. The most obvious indicator of any sort of naturalistic connection is the fact that all but one of the songs on the album, Set Down Your Glass, references nature or some aspect of the outside world. Even the three movements of The Lightning Strike, the 16-minute album finale, each have their own nature-connected lyrics. The chorus of Lifeboats is a prime example of this heavy connection, tying the meaning of the song into loads of landscape metaphors. It's clear that the band wants us to know that nature has an important role to play in the meaning of the album as a whole, a callback to our more primal and emotive selves, even referencing primal music in the opening song. But avoiding metaphor for a moment, what's the reasoning for this combination of natural imagery and the more primal human state? Why are these core tenements on the album? key motifs that recur so frequently. Well, remember what I said about a post-apocalyptic setting? In such a state, the default modern rendering of such a scenario sees a lot of cities and civilizations crumbling, overtaken by plant matter and the unceasing encroachment of nature, as well as a human return to barbaric means, violence and animalistic traits becoming the more prominent. In this world, the connection to nature is not just strong and all-encompassing, it's also inevitable, and we have proof of likely a nuclear-induced collapse in at least two ways, or rather two songs, if there's a rocket timey to it and disaster button. Not just the lyrics of these songs either, but the titles. These already sound related to nuclear devices, one being the actual device to carry the weapon, a rocket, and the other being the one to launch it, the button. 
Interestingly, neither of these songs use these titles in the lyrics, an element instead above the meaning, working to inform and influence it, and as such definitely can't be overlooked. If we look at the lyrics of both, we get even further evidence toward a reference toward nuclear explosives or an end of the world. Listen to the chorus of the first song and pay attention to the middle two lines especially. Your pulse, it's the only thing I can remember. I break, you don't. I was always set to self-destruct, though. These are not just lyrics that describe a self-destructive individual pining for a lost love. They also can abstract as far out as humanity and Mother Nature, with the band painting a picture of humanity being doomed to fail from the start, and nature being an unceasing current that will course-correct immediately following humanity's downfall. The surrounding lines both mention a fire as well, the first highlighting a situation requiring fleeing, and the second containing the line mentioned earlier about primal music, showing the regression of humanity following the event. Okay then, well, what's the point of all of this then? Sure, this theme could be argued to be present in the album. There's more than enough evidence to theorize this being a sound read. But then what's the point? With the romantic read devoid of any bizarre science fiction theory crafting, the point is easily found. One of not just giving up when difficulty strikes, to work to find the reasons you fell in love with someone in the past, and determining whether or not those can or do still apply to the present. But science fiction is vast, and often answerless, commonly antithetical to the very idea that there is a clear cut and dry reason for any one thing happening in the vast array of everything in the universe. Universe. But there again do we run the risk of being reductive, because so rare is it that a piece of media, a genre work of science fiction, remains solely in the sterile, emotionless domain of true ambiguity. Nearly all works of science fiction have some tendrils of other genres, emotive elements that drive a core-like heart into the work, trending the topics from cold rationality to more realistic swings of drama, comedy, mystery, and more that tug at the heartstrings and leave us on the edge of our seats. And we see this most assuredly in the third movement of The Lightning Strike, titled Daybreak. Daybreak is the moment where the clouds break, there's a sliver of hope in the wasteland, the sunlight burning through the loose flags. Although technically that line happens in the second movement of the song. In fact, listen to the second verse of this section and notice the particular joy in the scene being set. Your 
not only do we get another reference to a kind of apocalypse in the motionless Cars Rust line, but we also get a revelation regarding the aftermath. There is hope for this couple's relationship in the end. They've made it through to the other side of the bumpy terrain, the great storm separating them. Not only that, though, this also alludes to humanity as a whole and its relationship to the Earth and Mother Nature herself, representing a kind of thinking that it is possible to make it through our darkest days as long as we work together, and as Movement 2 puts it, hold on to each other like little life rafts, supporting and loving each other. And so, with no time to spare to get started on the track by track, we truly do reach the through line of the album, one that sets the world ablaze in an allusion to the trajectory of the human race, and one that attempts to show that the only way through, or even around such a situation, is to connect to the earth, to nature, and to each other, defiantly passionate and unceasingly apologetic. A warning, a thought experiment, and a recentering. Now, there are plenty of themes that still need to be unpacked, and there's really no better way to do that than to go song by song. So let's, of course, begin with the beginning. Two weeks later, like a surplus reprieve, I found a hair the length of yours on my... If there's a rocket, timey to it is, first of all, a mouthful, second of all, a bastard to type, and third of all, really quite fundamental in setting the stage for the rest of the album, story-wise and tone-wise. Obviously, it would be weird if the first song didn't do this, but I'm sure we'll find an album that's first song is not just about setting the stage someday. Here, we begin with an interesting theme regarding uncentered time, in the way that the story beginning to unfold is one that jumps back and forth between past, present, and future. The verses all reference a time after the collapse, and seem to show a relationship struggling to navigate this change, possibly being separated by a sea, as referenced in verse 3. However, this verse also includes lines referencing how the memory or thought of his partner is what keeps him going, sensitive to the nature of the world around him, every hum and echo and crash beating his cave, his primal home. And here is already where we start to unravel the connection to the earth, to nature as a romantic figure, or at least a caring, loving one. If there's a rocket represents this small flash of connection, a moment just following the collapse where the main character binds himself to another, taking a small piece of them and finding an innate connection through its small embrace. A heartbeat at the tip of his strangulated finger that matches the heartbeat of the other person. In this moment, the protagonist is noticing the wonder of the world, unfiltered by civilization, feeling the dust-to-dust -dust connection to the earth. And in Crack the Shutters, this adoration blossoms. Crack the shutters open wide. On the surface again, what appears to be about a couple lovingly taking in each other's company in the cozy still hours of the morning, again takes on allusions to landscape and scenery with the line, Your hills and valleys are mapped by my intrepid fingers. 
This occurs immediately before the chorus sings about letting in the morning light and allowing it to paint across the bedroom, much like the sun does the landscape through clouds. The small longing from the previous song has turned into love, a love for the simple aspect of the moment, free from responsibility and free from the worries of time or place. Now, before we get too ahead of ourselves, it's abundantly clear in this song that it is really about a man enjoying his company with his partner, living in the small beauties, consistently hard-eyed. In fact, it's really a monumental stretch to say that this song is about a love affair between a human and the earth, just as much as it's difficult to say sincerely that the album is post-apocalyptic. But what this reading allows, at least here, is the opportunity to point out lines that don't seem to make sense within the context of the album, and providing context, whether silly or not, we can work out how they interact with the rest of the song. Specifically, we are looking at the lines at the end of verse 2. And in a naked slumber, I dream all this again. This complicates everything so far, adding to the growing list of interpretations again. These interpretations, just to recap, now stand as one of a man reminiscing about a beautiful past relationship, one of a reprieve from struggles of collapsed society basking in the new beauty they've discovered, and now one of a completely different ilk, one that helps explain a line from the first song and goes to really establish the theme more concretely. That new interpretation is one of a yearning, a yearning for a change in the world to a more cohabitable one, one that merges the natural and the artificial, and one that even hopes for something akin to a reset. The album isn't really post-apocalyptic at all, in a way. Surprise, you've all been bamboozled. Instead, it's hopeful for a brighter, more connected future, one that we have an instinctual memory of and a wish to return to. That's why the title of the first song requests being tied to the rocket, the one to change the world, because he wants it to change. He wants to go back to the easy silence then, better than the incomplete hush of modern society, one where there is never truly quiet, what with the ovens, airplanes, and distant car horns. Crack the Shutters isn't a song about learning to love nature, it's one that already knows that it loves it and wants to re-enter the era where it's easy and pure to do so. But the advocation is not just for a pure, complete return to primalcy. The songs so far have mentioned primal things, but none of the lyrics have fully committed to this idea, and that's largely because they won't. The point isn't to return to barbarism, nothing so extreme as that, but yet the album is also incredibly concerned with a lack of course correction at all, which is where the apocalyptic imagery we've described falls into place. Rather, the solution is balance. This is where Take Back the City comes in. Immediately at the beginning of the song, we get a completely different sounding musical style, accompanied by the lead singer singing in a tonally shifted way that almost seems like it belongs in a different album. Not only that, but the singer addresses different people throughout the verses, each telling a different story. Listen to verse 2 and 3 to notice how that theme changes. God knows you put your life into its hands, and it's both cradled you and crushed, but 
Verse 2 has the protagonist encouraging someone to stick up for themselves and fight for their life, while verse 3 has the protagonist chastising an entity for some kind of ruin, likely a government or collection of them. The chorus then takes a new perspective in these readings, shining a light not on one city in particular, but the wealth of cities in totality, civilization as a whole. The singer repeatedly sings that despite its flaws, every crack, he loves this city always. But he also signals a rallying cry to pick a side and, well, take back the city. Bring it into a state that is more in line with the world he wants to see, rather than 10,000 craters where it all should be. We'll actually return to this craters reference in the lightning strike, but it also brings up an interesting motif in the album. One of immensely large numbers. I mean, the album itself is called A Hundred Million Suns. In a way, it's meant to represent that this isn't a local story, that it stretches out in importance beyond what we can understand, a universal problem for the sake of our species and for the sake of the world in which we live. But it also references how small we are individually and how important community is as a result. And this is a big part of the following song, Lifeboats. The idea of dreams again returns here, but with the added wrinkle of including a reference to nightmares. While the first three songs are uplifting and encouraging, this one has an element of doubt and fear. As we've shown before, the song is littered with references to arguments, and the chorus of the song has somewhat unsettling descriptions of how important our connection with the Earth is. The protagonist sees himself in his dreams as a part of the ecosystem, his veins removed from his body and stretched out into the world, one rife with blood-red streams. These visions of a dangerous future slowly weave into nightmares later in the song, until he is shocked out of it by someone else, someone that really cares. And this is finally where we're able to rest on some semblance of sanity for the love interest character. This character exists throughout every song as the main interaction the protagonist has, but it's been difficult to this point to pin down if it's a lover, mother nature, an ex, etc., because pieces of all of these exist within the storyline depicted song to song. But that's the point. This isn't one person. This is a community. This is many people or entities who in some way are connected to the protagonist and provide assistance, guidance, or connection at various points in his realization of the purpose and goal. Pushing for a better future, yearning for change, is not something that reasonably can or should be done alone. It is this person, this community, this connection in lifeboats that snaps him out of his paranoia of the future, the frightening path that he promonitively views in his dreams. And that connection is furthered and wrapped into a new love in the golden floor.
Again, the song is almost dark, its melody more minor than the first three songs, but there is a comfort here that sings out in the chorus, one of a lack of that fear from before. I'm not afraid of anything, even time. There's a peace in the darkness. Listen to verse two really quick. A sleeping planet with a molten core. From above, we'd cut a slow eight shape and much more. The idea of a sleeping giant goes along with the themes of Apocalypse from before, but mesh more into a conversation about the eventual and inevitable demise of humanity, the iron core of the earth no longer raging but embers, merely molten. However, he feels an indefinite love, carving out a figure eight shape, or rather an infinity sign, into the ground below them. Their connection transcends time, a permanent mark on the history of the universe. But just as much as there is hope for an endless future, it is only human to look back upon what has already happened and feel a mixture of grief and existential dread at the amount of time that has already passed, and how little of it we can truly remember. Please just take these photos from my hands is, on the surface, a very apparent ode to those memories, stained by the passage of time and the retroactive damage that failing relationships and poor decisions can cause to those memories. The protagonist is clearly going through a separation situation at this point, as pointed out by the endless parade of boxes that haunts his house and the name under words in your elegant hand that you probably don't mean now. His memories were bright, but now soured, and by the end he is begging for someone else to come remove the thoughts, the memories, the photos from his hands. The last lyrics in the song, this plea, asked over and over. And really, this can be abstracted out to the themes we've already been discussing. One of the main psychological quandaries that people are having to come to grips with within the last decade or two is that the actions of the past are actively having consequences on the future. The decisions made even by themselves are proving damaging to society and the ecosystem as a whole. We're in a period of transition, our moving boxes scattered, but there will be no improvement until we forgive ourselves for the mistakes we've made and stop idolizing the past and rather look forward to the future to write things then. But we haven't quite yet reached the future in the next song, Set Down Your Glass. And I'm shaken that I'm still When your eyes meet mine Are the simple skills Like to sell you a very light song that opens the back half of the album. The lyrics see the protagonist embracing the present, repeatedly referencing that all he wants is now, or that he has painted a picture of the two of them to look like them forever as they are now. This song sees the other individual as an individual. There are no other apparent interpretations here. There are no complex thoughts, no crazy illusions. He is grounded and in love and is sharing time. In fact, this is one of the only songs on the album that does not reference nature or contain apocalyptic imagery in any way. However, we are able to notice a particular theme that doesn't just exist here, but stretches throughout the album. 
Rather than only making it clear that the protagonist relies on the other, there is a mutual leaning, a mutual trust that occurs here. It's light in this song, mentioning that she will sew him as good as new and that he knows she will, but it showcases this necessary bond of trust that carries throughout. And in The Planets Bend Between Us, the album lifts up further, adding back into the fold the nature and landscape imagery. The winters mark the earth It's floored with frozen glass We slept into the winters marked the earth, its floor was frozen glass. Already we're getting the return of quite a few themes. The mutual trust and reliance, the playing with time, the landscape imagery, apocalyptic winter imagery, the passionate adoration, and the references to the past and the future. This song is incredibly soft and gentle, despite its rather joyous lyrics. Singing about shouting out this love so loud they can hear it from Ireland to America. There's an attempt to close the distance here, where the sea fills in the silence and amplifies the message, much like the crashes and echoes that he references in If There's a Fire. And this goal of globalization does not just extend to the chorus, but as a line from earlier, the planets bend between us, a hundred million suns and stars. The planets bend between us, a hundred million suns and stars. As you probably noticed, that's the name of the album, and the name of the song mixed together into one lyrical idea. But the more interesting thing is the way the sentence is structured. Because there is no further break in the grammar between the first and second half, it would be difficult to assign the hundred million suns and stars to the same part of speech location as the planets. Rather, the hundred million suns and stars must then instead be another name for us. We are the hundred million suns, and this goes a long way to describing why the album is named this in the first place. Because if we are the hundred million suns, then we are the force being described in the album as that which can help solve the problems facing the world through our differences and through our connection. Everyone provides something unique, and it's up to that connection, the shrinking sea between us, to fill in the silences, the sea being our connector rather than our divider. This also explains the visual motif used throughout the album's artwork and its single covers of unique and beautifully crafted origami stars. The album is about everyone, all 7 billion of us, and now obviously that's more than 100 million people in the world, but the melody works better with the longer phrase. But as we begin to find the connection between us and the album's joy starts to climax, we suddenly find ourselves in a new downward trajectory in engines. First off, the name of the song itself signals a rather abrupt change, from the simple action of set down your glass to the beautiful scenic imagery of the planets bend between us. We are moved into a namesake that highlights one of the main culprits of the dangerous societal path, 
engines, and subsequently fossil fuel. The first verse of the song has numerous references to jets and rockets and engines, burning up and fire and noise and burying all violent things. Even the choruses, which talk about all of the ways the two love each other, feel backhanded or not fully positive in a way. Silence of the turning earth, endless roar of modern life, dying days, a million times I never said. These are missed chances or false reasons, insincere support, or at least damaged support, that doesn't allow the needed growth to happen. So instead, we fall into the lawlessness, the danger, the apocalypse of Disaster Button. A little after twelve, the function suite was full. People I had never seen before. This really doesn't need to be described too much, but let's put some elements into place. We've already established this idea of an apocalyptic setting in the first song, pushing into a growing love and adoration for the natural world and the hope for coexistence in the first three songs. This then moves into the necessary connection of humanity that grows through the following three, until an epiphany, an outbursting love and hope for connection in the beginning of the back half. However, the world is not full of kind and perfect people, so the inevitable demise of humanity has already kicked into motion, and we've arrived now to the tipping point. The floor is littered with trash, ticket stubs of everyone witnessing the end of the world. No one is getting out of here tonight. He even admits later to being one of the ticket stubs, one of the people who is watching it all happen. It then lifts the roof off the place, and rather macabrely puts a grin on his face, a morbid irony like laughing at a funeral. This driving song finally wraps up, and we're near the end. One more song left, one more story, one last chance to wrap up the idea, the theme. And luckily for us, we have 16 minutes to do it. This is The Lightning Strike a masterpiece epic that acts as a fundamental summary for the entire rest of the album. Everything that came before, all of the themes contained within and the all-around best way to wrap up. It begins with movement one, what if this storm ends? disaster button, we established that we're in a bad spot story-wise. The world is ending, the cards are played, and the beginning of this movement establishes this tone in seconds, an ominous piano riff in an atmospheric layer. This movement is rather peculiar, lyric-wise, however, because it is presenting two different ideas simultaneously. Firstly, we get a kind of primal fear, worry that the world will never be the same following the storm, this turbulent moment at the end of Disaster Button, even referencing the planet's last dance. Yet, we are also getting an anger, one that has not been apparent for the rest of the album, except for possibly please just take these photos. Take a listen. Now, 
the lightning in me that strikes relentless. It's almost as if he's attempting to harness this storm into fuel that he can then use to fight against this happening at all. In some ways, this movement and the songs before have been premonitions again, theories on the future, and his fear of this outcome has enraged him into attempting to fight it. But in this moment, he is alone, following the storm, this perfect halo of gold hair and lightning, until he finally finds it and lets it overwhelm him. And in movement two, he starts out dead or dying. He is lifting above the clouds where the caravans are kids' toys. The sunlight has broken, the light leading him beyond, as just for a second he is granted a moment of peace. But just as he is about to pass through, the trend of faith providing this passage bucks, and something repairs him. The perspective has switched from him to the one helping him, or witnessing him being helped. The end of the world has happened, but when all seemed lost, and he appeared unable to effect change upon his death, he is revived, repaired by more than glue. And the final verse of the movement sees someone caring for him, commenting on him being alone, and remarking that he is now safe. A similar snapback to reality such as the one in Lifeboats, a rescue from the nightmare. And it is this connection that fuels the rebirth in Movement 3, Daybreak. Something was bound to go right sometime today All these broken pieces fit together To make a perfect picture of us It got cold and then dark so suddenly it rained just after he is saved, just after he is cared for and no longer alone, the day breaks, and new life and joyous sound once again emerge. There is hope that grows and blossoms here, and despite the vicious torrential downpour that occurs just moments after, he sings that something was bound to go right today. And they cling to each other, a mutual protection that keeps them afloat, each other's life rafts, or rather, lifeboats. Those 10,000 craters where it all should be we mentioned earlier from Take Back the City are now just salad bowls, basins, and buckets for bailing out the flood. The exact thing that caused the problem in the first place is the thing that helps fix it, holding the downpour below, keeping it dry above. And that exact thing that caused the problem is people, or rather their lack of connection. See, wars, pollution, poverty, hunger, pain, suffering, all of it, are largely human creations, a fundamental lack of sympathy or empathy that sees many of those who have more unwilling or unable to help those with less or protect that which cannot protect itself. As a result, society and the world with it disintegrates. The songs on this album that are the most joyous, the most uplifting, are those that find beauty in our connection, whereas those that are the most minor, the most pounding or violent, are those that bring up worry at our selfishness or our brashness. And so the final message of the album, the final lesson taught to us hundred million sons, is to know that it is only through each other that it's possible to build a future that will be worth 
all of us that leaning on each other and loving our homes, our ecosystems, our world, and the people who inhabit it is the best way to save ourselves from extinction and apocalypse. Stick around after the break for a quick rundown on what the artist and fans have said about the album. Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done breaking down 100 Million Suns by Snow Patrol, and now I wanted to go through a few things that the artist has said about the album and fans have said about the album, as we always do, and I thought no better place to start than maybe just a quick conversation about what place this has had in my life album-wise, what place Snow Patrol has had in my life. I remember when this album came out uh, a long time ago, my dad had started listening to it and he had started listening to the first few songs in the album. And it was different than what I had heard up to the time. I think I at that point had heard Chasing Cars and everyone had heard Chasing Cars. And this album just sounded completely different to me. It sounded very fresh to what I had originally heard Chasing Cars. And I liked Chasing Cars for a long time. I listened to it a lot. A lot of probably high school, middle school boys of my type did in those times. But this album had a particular draw to it because it had a very specific sound that carried throughout the entire album. And that's one of the more interesting things about some of the later Snow Patrol projects is that they did have a tonal quality that carried throughout the entire album. Fallen Empires that came after this was a different kind of sound. It was a little bit more electronic, maybe a little bit more repetitive, but it had this overarching brightness, this kind of very expansive, high production quality sound that managed to feel grounded for the entire album. This kind of spoke to me. I am the type of music listener that listens to albums when I'm in a particular mood or in a particular setting. For example, when you're sad, you listen to sad music. When you're happy, you listen to happy music. And it is that togetherness with the music that gives you a little bit more of an understanding to how you're feeling and maybe a way to work through how you're feeling. And this album had that particular feeling to it. With all of the landscape imagery and with all of the spacey imagery, it felt like a very bright kind of summer-like album. And what's particularly interesting to me is that not only do some people have the same connection to a thematic idea or a feeling in this album, they feel this theme in an entirely different way than I do. A lot of the reviews on the album and a lot of the personal connections to the album all treat it as this fall or winter type feeling. An album that you put on during the colder months as a sense of warmth or to go along with the feeling of the outdoors. A review from Sputnik Music by a writer by the name of Sewing said that there are two distinct themes, winter and love. At some moments, the imagery is overwhelming and you find yourself in the middle of a snowstorm holding onto your girl for warmth. And this is an interesting idea because they are representing the album in this similar natural space that I felt the album existed in with the summer, but are still connecting it to this feeling that they themselves get. 
they're connecting it to their own personal experience or at least an idea of what they want their personal experience to be. And there's even another one, a a review by a fan on the website Album of the Year, who goes into a whole explanation of a scene that they have playing in their head during some of the songs, where they say, An autumn day walking under the trees as a soft wind blows, the leaves brushing against your face and crunching beneath your feet. It's cold out, but not the harsh biting cold. It's the kind of cold that you want to be in, to be able to go out in warm clothing and walk around in the autumn light. This is such a specific read of the music that they're obviously connecting it to some aspect of an idyllic circumstance or a memory that they had or something that's really important to them, something that they can hold on to. And I think that this is really important in music, this idea of being able to connect to something in a way that evokes memory or evokes feeling or evokes even daydreaming or imagining what could be great. Because a lot of the times life isn't great and a lot of the times we go through situations that are difficult to work through and difficult to understand. And an album having the power, music having the power to provide those recluses and provide those thoughts and those ideas is something that cannot be understated. I also tend to find it interesting when other people find the same readings in the music that I do. There is a fan reviewer on the website Album of the Year who, upon listening to The Lightning Strike, found a similar apocalyptic bent to at least that song, especially in the the last section, Daybreak. They say, while the song itself is a love song, using the storm as a metaphor, I see it as more, as the track progresses, I see it as an apocalyptic event that occurs, part one being that event, and these two hunkering it out somewhere safe. Part two is when they get up and look around to see what's left of civilization trying to comprehend it all, when part three is them getting together and being able to make it through stronger. The fact that somebody else read an apocalyptic bent to the album does blend my crazy theory a little bit more credit, but it's also interesting in that it does evoke this interesting conversation that a lot of people in literary classes or in school writing essays about different books that they read and hearing the different interpretations of things and thinking that, oh, there's no way that this was intended. There's no way that this was the actual reason for this to exist, where it is possible that those things are true. It is possible that those interpretations are correct, because if more than one person can achieve the same conclusion, then there may be some purpose for why that was included in the first place. And it also goes to show that even the craziest ideas sometimes are the ones that have merit. And it would be naive to assume that anything that seems bizarre is out of the realm of possibility or out of the realm of usefulness. Some of the most important inventions in history were created by accident or by people who were taking a chance on an idea and just happened to stumble upon some of the greatest innovations that modern society wouldn't be able to exist without. I do not have a couple of examples pulled up in the recesses of my mind, but that doesn't mean that it's not correct. And there's another aspect of this that's also interesting, where Gary Lightbody is a writer that has suffered from a lot of writer's block, and this was most evident in Fallen Empires, and then also the fact that their most recent album came out nearly six or more years 
if not more, from their previous album. But even though he suffered from this, he's still written. This is their fifth studio album at this time. And there's an authenticity to a lot of the things that he writes in that some of it is taken from his actual life. Another really good lesson for anyone writing or anyone reading or anything like that, that the easiest way to write is to pull from experiences in your own life. And you can take those experiences and change them. It doesn't need to be exact. And I think that's where a lot of or some writing professors tend to get this idea a little bit twisted, or even some just writers themselves, is that writing what you know does not mean writing exactly what's happened to you. More so, it means building off of experiences that you've had in ways that suit the narrative idea that you've come up with in a more grounded and realistic way. I mean, as the saying goes, all the best lies have a little bit of truth to them. And if writing is one big lie, then there is some element of truth that must exist in order for it to be the best. And this interview with the Daily Telegraph, Gary Lightbody was saying that he was caught in a devastating storm in Glasgow one night with 150 mile an hour winds, which is crazy, trees falling down. But he just went outside and he said it was thrilling. There was this howling wind, but it felt like silence, as if our senses were being too bombarded to cope with what was going on. So the record was born out of that feeling of two people having a protective shell around each other. So he took this experience that he had and he wrapped it up into the meaning of this is specifically talking about the lightning strike. And that's a really interesting idea that adds an element of intention behind the album, which is one of the things that we always try to look for in the podcast and goes to show a bit of subtlety or a bit of complexity to the album that seems like it was difficult at times for some people to see. One of the things that I noticed a lot while doing research for this section, while looking through the reviews and looking through the comments made by people who did or didn't like the music, when I was doing this research, there were a number of reviews that ripped apart this album in a way that is entirely unfair to what the album is trying to accomplish. Because I have this theory that not all works of entertainment in their specific field can be judged on the same scale. A lot of movie reviewers and a lot of music reviewers and a lot of video game reviewers and all of these different critics judge every work based on the same set of criteria. They judge a work based on some idealistic circumstance of what they think the perfect movie or perfect game or perfect album is, and as such, lose a lot of the nuance on what an album or other piece of media is trying to do. There's a review by Joshua Love on Pitchfork. He rated the album a 4.9 out of 10, where he says, There's also loads of bad planetary metaphors and overwrought cosmological bullshit that proves oh so germane to the album's title. A Hundred Million Suns is rife with the sense of a band striving to be taken more seriously, whether through rocking more manfully, displaying a more sophisticated subtlety, or simply stringing together three ponderous, already overlong songs and calling the impenetrable result a 16-minute standalone epic. First of all, there is no actual critique taking place here. This is a review from the point of view of somebody who has already made up their mind about the music, has already decided that Snow Patrol, based on their previous experience, is a band that, in his terms, is sissy rock. Which, first of all, is a hot mess of an idea. Like, just because something doesn't appeal to your specific idea of what masculine music is, is, which is a concept that is kind of bananas to begin with, doesn't mean that it is in the realm of needing to be criticized for doing something different. 
Snow Patrol has already proven that they have a market for the type of music that they make. Snow Patrol has already proven that they have fans that will listen to their music in terms of almost a billion streams of one song of theirs on Spotify alone and millions of people who listen to their music every month. This is something that we talked a lot about on the podcast, but the idea of reducing an album down to a single word definition or a stereotypical box or set of ideals that you think aren't worth your time is not only unfair to yourself as a music listener, but also unfair to the people who read what you put out. Now, there are bad albums. There are bad pieces of music and there are bad pieces of media, but it is not in and of itself. Those things are defined on their own scale and not on the scale of what the album is trying to accomplish. If the album is accomplishing what it's trying to accomplish, which is being something that is comforting to people, is being something that is connecting to people's base emotional ideas of romance or ideas of how they want to see themselves in a life with a lifelong partner or in those types of circumstances, if it is accomplishing the things that it is setting out to do, then it can't be a bad album because it has achieved its goal. Its goal should be the only thing that the album is measured against. And with that idea in mind, a lot more albums that are lower rated would be much higher rated and would not have the same kind of stain put on them by people who are unfairly accusatory to the ideas presented within them. Just because something is easy to digest, just because something is easy to understand does not make it bad. And one of the really wonderful things about this album and about the way that the band started to approach the album and writing it, and goes along with the idea of people taking comfort from the album, is that the band was in a much brighter place writing this album than Eyes Open. So by comparing it directly to their previous album and saying, oh, it's not as good as their previous album, then you're ignoring the context of what was happening with the band at the time. If you want to go ahead and say that an album made during a worse period of time is better than an album made at a better period of time and having little extra to say other than that idea, then you're perpetuating an idea that only pain and only trauma and only difficulty can create good art. And as such, that creates a constant in culture that basically makes it so those situations where trauma is created, where pain is created, are less of a concern because they are good at molding people or good at creating good things. It would be much better to create good things out of good experiences and not just good things out of bad ones because we shouldn't be wishing for bad things to happen to ourselves or to the people around us just for some fairy tale idea of being able to turn that trauma into something valuable. Pain should not be a commodity. And with that, I think that we'll wrap up with this week's episode of Throughline, covering Snow Patrol's 100 Million Suns. This was an interesting album to cover, and I thank you all for listening. I hope to see you all back next time. And remember, everyone, just because you don't know the reason why you like something doesn't mean that's not reason enough. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.